0: Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast.
1: Show me the meaning!
0: There it is. I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Helen. What up, what up? And we've got Michael. Hello, I'm happy to be here. That is good. I'm glad that you're happy to be here. I'm happy to be here, even though I'm not sure that this film is something that we're all happy to have to discuss because I know that it's been cr- Oh, wait, those faces, I don't know. I'm very curious. Both of those were like cringy faces. Um, we're going to be talking about the newly released Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay, starring everybody. That's Leo, Jay law Cate <laughs> Blanchett, Medea is in it, Timothy Chalamet is in it, Meryl Streep is in it. By the way, that was Tyler Perry, for those of you who don't get the joke. Uh, Jonah Hill is in it, Rob Morgan, Mark Ryland. Etc. 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 As always, we're going to go around and do first impressions and things like that before we start unpacking. But before we do, I do want to just give a couple of house cleaning remarks. One, you can follow us on Twitter SMTM underscore POD. That's SMTM underscore POD. You can also head over to Patreon. That's Patreon.com/wisecrack, and you can get access to some bonus episodes. And uh, we've talked about like the philosophy of acting or like what, what makes a good acting performance. We've talked about good uh, debut features. We've talked about a little behind-the-scenes extra stuff on Apocalypse Now, a bunch of other things. So go to patreon.com slash wisecrack as well as, I think, getting access to all kinds of other goodies. So patreon.com slash wisecrack. Also, make sure to check out the other podcast that Michael is always wow. uh, this on. is so kind. Culture binge. Culture binge, um, so you can check those those things out. And I, I keep having to clarify, but there is no competition between us.
1: Um, I don't think, although I've never been on Culture Binge, I've I never been invited. Well, to so maybe there one- is. One? No, no, no. I think there's producer-based competition. I want to say that Matt, the producer (laughs) of Show Me the Meaning, and Maddie, the producer of Culture Binge, have a deep-seated hatred that goes back at least three generations. I want to Mm. say, Austin, the reason you have not been invited on is due to uh, Australia and nothing else than that. We record early morning uh, America time, and I think it would be not a good time of day for you.
0: Oh, so it was for my well-being? Hey, you know what? i That's a very good reason. Valid reason. I, yeah, I accept. I, I don't
1: want 2 a.m. Austin thoughts. That's dangerous. I, <laughs> I've seen what you're capable of in those hours, you know? We're a family Absolutely. show.
0: Absolutely. All right, all right, all right. So go check out all those goodies. Also, we are live right now on YouTube. So if you are listening live on YouTube, hi, welcome, hello. Um, make sure the that you comment down below, give us your thoughts on this film. Um, what do you think about the film and the related issues that it's dealing with, other satires, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that's pretty much it. So let's go around and let's do some first impressions. Let's start with Helen. I don't know how many times you've seen this film, but what was your initial kind of interaction with this piece of media.
2: Yeah, so I've seen it twice now. I saw it first when it, like, right when it first came out because there had been a ton of hype among people who were in the science community about, like, how this is something you, you know, have to see. And then um, I rewatched it today, actually, just to refresh my memory a bit. And I will say I had a different experience each time, but my first, first impression was I was entertained. Um, I was kind of in awe of how on the nose it was when it came to just, uh, you know, it it didn't, it's one of those things I've seen repeated over and over again where, and I'd love to discuss this with you guys, whether or not this really counts as true satire when it's so, again, on the nose, right? Like, it feels like so many things here aren't really all that exaggerated, obviously, except with, you know, with the exception of a comet barreling toward the planet um, at this point anyway. But, you know, who knows? 2022 <laughs> just started. So, yeah, that was my first take.
1: OK, Michael, what about you? Seen it twice. Uh, first time I saw it in a, in a movie theater, which was interesting. And I walked out oh. kind of feeling like it was OK. I liked I liked the ending a little bit. And then I think okay. if anyone listened to the Step Brothers episode, you know this. Uh, I'm a big Adam McKay guy. So I went into this movie, just to be clear, in case anyone gets mad at me for anything I say later in this podcast, I love Adam McKay. I was so excited about this movie. I wanted it to be great. Upon watching it a second time, I was pretty underwhelmed. I I think it's a movie that has really big aspirations, and I don't think it, it cashes out on many of those aspirations. I think that it thinks it's a satire, but it's not a satire. Um, we can maybe talk about why a little bit later. Um, it is funny at times, but the comedy is all, in my mind, incidental to the story. And I think that once again, we'll talk more about this. I think I think a a really good satire. The comedy comes from like the engine of the story and the plot itself. I feel like in this one, all the comedy is like Jonah Hill on the side, a funny bit about the Pentagon chief who charges you ten dollars for crackers and water. Um, so, so, I will say as as someone who believes that Adam McKay is one of the best comedy filmmakers and one of the best uh, sort of political satirists of our generation, i, I was pretty disappointed and think he's capable of of much better than this. Do you know why your thoughts changed from the first viewing to the second viewing? like was it
0: yeah was it maybe that you were caught up in the magic of the movie theater the first time or something?
1: Oh, I'm I'm a big theater guy, so you put me in the theater, and I'll I'll like almost anything. I think it was a bit of that, and it was like going into it. Except for Enter the Void. Don't and even I get can started. say this Don't
0: because I was in the movie theater with Michael when we watched Enter the Void, and about a third of the way through, I just looked over with the friends that we were with, and he had his headphones on and was listening
1: to Bruce Springsteen. So, hundred percent, I needed <laughs> Bruce. Bruce had to talk me I will through it. I wasn't ready for I will that never level forget of that. dark French nihilism, <laughs> and I was just like, I need to be back in Jersey in the seventies, thinking about the plights of the working man when he gets home from Vietnam. Um, <laughs> But I will say yes. Yeah. I, I was excited in the theater and I went into it being like, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. And I think it took me a bit to be honest with myself. And I do think this is an instance where um, seeing the response to it was helpful. I think there's some really good criticism written about this film. And also in between my first and second viewings, I, I will say that I think the makers of this film have, have done a poor showing on social media um, in terms of how they have responded to criticism reactions of the film if I have one life motto, it's probably act like you've been there before. And the filmmakers did not act as if they had been there before. <laughs> and I just think squabbling with people on Twitter isn't like a best look, isn't it? Isn't a good look for artists. Mm. But yeah, we maybe talk a little more about that as well. But I think, I think all those factors led to me being underwhelmed on a repeat viewing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I kind of thought the trailer was fine. Like I'm not a big fan of these huge... Ensemble cast pieces They don't tend to really Hit it out of the park too often So I really didn't have a ton of crazy expectations But I was like oh I mean Maybe though because of the team behind it And um, I was like I I could get excited because I love the big short I didn't love Vice Vice was fine but I loved the big short. So I was like, you know, uh, and I mean, uh, even though McKay isn't the creator and primary engine behind it, Succession is my favorite show on television. So I was like, okay, so this guy knows what he's doing at least in terms of doing social commentary and satire. And and I thought that it, like, okay, so it, it would be okay at least. I was thinking, you know, like, I was thinking like three out of five. I was like, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be fine. Um, and then I saw it, and I, I was entertained. The performances are fine. Um, it was okay. But then, as I really started to think critically about it, and then actually as I started to watch, I only watched the first half at first, maybe the first two thirds, and I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. Like everyone freaking out online, like all my friends online, people in my, in my kind of like immediate so- circle that are like more theory or film um like intelligent i would say like people that i trust their opinions on things they were fucking like hating this film and i was like damn but then there were a lot of people that were like oh if you hate it you just don't get it and like all the scientists were like hell yeah this is a great movie and then i was like okay okay so i needed to just kind of step away for a bit and i actually waited like a week before i finished the film and then i watched the final third of it and at this point i kind of put my critical thinking hat on and i started to kind of think through every side that i could and um I, you know I, I don't think it's a bad film from like a technical perspective, but I'm just not sure what what it's for. Like, I don't really enjoy mean-spirited satire. And as people might know from this podcast, I don't like uh, Idiocracy. And the reason I don't like it is because I just think that it is just fundamentally like snooty. And it's just, you know, kind of like an artistic liberal putting up his nose at dumb people. And I just don't really think that that's Um, a really interesting form of artistic discourse. And I think that this film really suffers from that. And I think that it would have been better, and actually, Michael, you tweeted this, I think it would have been better if they didn't just make the president just this, like, clear Trumpist kind of inspired figure, um, and there's a lot of things like that that I just thought were too easy, too easy to lampoon the other while you stand there as the enlightened and the pure. You're the red-pilled, you're the pure, you're the enlightened, you're the you're the brilliant, you're the smart, you're the clever, you're the one who has their finger on objective truth, and everybody else just a fucking idiot, so bludgeon them over the head, you fucking idiots. And I just think that that is dogmatic, and ironically, I think it's a really weird um, type of religious, pseudo, kind of post-religious religiosity that i think is disgusting in popular discourse and we see it too much it's just this like center center left um american liberal supremacy and i think it's gross um so part of me is like ah it's not a horrible film and another part of me is like but the ideology behind it i think is kind of gross so i don't know i don't know um well, i'm but excited yeah.
1: to dig into what some of you just said uh once we once we get once we get cruising so that's very interesting yeah
0: also. Yeah, because there was a lot there. So, okay. So, um, we want to do a quick recap here for people who either it's been a little while since you've seen it or for people who haven't seen it and they kind of want to get some spoilers. But, so yeah, here we go. So, um, when Kate... Dibioski and Dr. Randall Mindy discover an extinction-level comet heading straight for Earth in six months. They seek to warn the White House with the help of the head of NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office, which is I guess a real thing, Dr. Teddy Oglethorpe. But President Orlean and her son slash chief of staff are apathetic about it all. So the scientists leak the news to the press and they begin a media campaign to warn of the threat. Now after Dibioski loses her cool on a popular morning talk show, her boyfriend announced her and Dr. Minning become, Dr. Mindy becomes a celeb as the world's sexiest scientist. Now the actual news about the comet's threat receives little public attention and is ultimately denied by the director of NASA. However, when Orlean is involved in a sex scandal with her Supreme Court nominee, she diverts attention and improves her approval ratings by confirming the threat of the comet, announcing a project to strike and divert the comet using nuclear weapons. Now, the mission successfully launches, but Orlean abruptly aborts it when Peter Isherwell, the billionaire CEO of tech company Bash, and another top donor discovers that the comet actually contains trillions of dollars worth of rare earth elements. So the White House agrees to commercially exploit the comet by fragmenting and recovering it from the ocean using new technology proposed by Bash's Nobel laureates in a scheme that has not undergone scholarly peer review. The White House then hires Dr. Mindy as the National Science Advisor, and Dibioski tries to mobilize public opposition to the scheme but gives up under the threat from Orleans' administration. Mindy becomes a prominent voice advocating for the Comet's commercial opportunities and begins an affair with popular morning talk show host, Evan T. Kate Blanchett in a pretty great role, I would say. Um... So yeah, this is the thing There's so much good in something that maybe isn't all that great There's some really hilarious performances But okay, I digress World opinion is divided among those who demand destruction of the comet Those who decry alarmism And those who believe that mining the comet will create jobs And then those who deny that the comet even exists Dibioski returns home to Illinois And begins a fatalistic relationship with Yule A shoplifter she meets at her retail job After Mindy's wife confronts him about his infidelity She returns to Michigan without him Mindy, becoming angry and frustrated with the administration ends up having a huge rant on live television, and criticizes Orlean for downplaying the impending apocalypse and questioning humanity's indifference. Now, cut off from the administration, Mindy reconciles with Dibioski as the comet becomes visible from Earth, with Mindy, Dibioski, and Oglethorpe all organizing a protest campaign on social media against Orlean and Bash, telling people to just look up. And then they call on other countries to conduct comet interception operations of their own, which China, India, and Russia agree to do, and so they prepare a joint effort to deflect the comet, but an explosion destroys their spacecraft, leaving Mindy distraught. And then, of course, Bash's attempt, which is to mine the comet for precious resources, also goes awry, and everyone realizes that humanity is doomed. Now, Ishawell, Orlean, and others, in their elite circle, they board a sleeper spaceship designed to find an Earth-like planet, But they inadvertently leave Orlean's son Jason behind. Orlean offers Mindy two places on the ship, but he declines, choosing to spend a final evening with his family, Dibioski, Oglethorpe, and Yule. As expected, the comet hits Earth, causing a worldwide disaster and triggering an extinction-level event. The 2,000 people who left Earth before the impact land on a lush alien planet 22,740 years later, ending their cryogenic sleep. They exit their spacecraft naked and mostly empty-handed, admiring the habitable world... Uh, but Orlean is quickly killed and eaten by an alien creature, as others of its kind surround the humans. Now, apparently, there's also a post-credit scene, but I didn't see it, so I had to hear about it online. But in the post-credit scene, Jason emerges from the rubble, the rubble because he survives the comet, and he screams for his mother and tries to post on
1: social media using his phone. You know what? I, I didn't know. Truly, I, I thought the I thought the after whatever scene is when she gets <laughs> eaten by the Brontarock. So yeah, I'm going to have no, to go fast forward. Yeah, there's that, that whole now. one at
2: the end. Wow. He's like the last, the last man standing. That changes everything.
1: You know what? Ten out of yep. ten. Two thumbs up. Love ten it. Ten of-
0: <laughs> All right. So we're going to start peeling this thing apart. But before we do, I've got to give a quick shout out to our sponsor at Skillshare. Look, you all know the deal. If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm a fan of Skillshare. I've used it for some really cool design classes on like UX and UI and digital design and things like that. And also for like how to wed together your interests in design and activism. So you can go to Skillshare.com SMTM and you'll actually get a free trial of their premium membership where you can get involved not only in just the classes, but you can also get involved in this community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives, and of course, where you can explore things that you're passionate about. And um, they offer thousands of classes too, so it's not just things like that I just mentioned, but pretty much anything that you can think of creatively, uh, creatively they're gonna offer classes for. So um, iPhone photography, drone filming, editing, how to make better TikTok videos, Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, if you're a knitter, if you're a painter, if you want to use watercolors, if you want to use oil things, if you want to do digital stuff, whatever, Skillshare has classes that will be perfect for you. So if you want to explore your creativity and you want to connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of the premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM or click the link down below. All right. Let's start unpacking some things. The good with the bad. Let's start with what we like. Let's do like a compliment sandwich, okay? So Helen, what do you what do you like about this film?
2: Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I thought his performance was fantastic. I thought he nailed that role. Um, you know, there's some actors who are so big that no matter, you know, when you see them in something, you just, you think of them as that actor. Like, I thought he truly just blended into the role of Dr. Mindy and, um... I just really enjoyed his performance. I thought it was great. So that's my plus one. What about you guys? Michael. What do you got? Give us a, yeah, give I mean, us a compliment. I,
1: some great performances. Um, I got to hear Timothy Chalamet say he's got your face on his fucking board, um, <laughs> which was one of the best things I've ever heard. Um, Mark Rylance, his performance as Peter Ishwell is insane. Such that, like, oh, so I kind good. of would. Like, so you know, you, you see Mark Rylance in most things and he's like a British theater actor dude and he's often in prestige things or like BBC-produced uh, dramas that take place in the early 20th century, whatever it might be. And I think he did something really weird and fun with his Peter Isherwell character. And in my mind, that's the part of the film that was relatively successful, the obscuring um, of the narcissistic tech CEO type. And I think the way in which... They, they showed that for that person, who I think is like a hyperbolic mixture of a like a Bezos and a Musk, um, I think the film does a good job of showing, A, how intertwined those folks' power is with government power, and B, um, how sort of cosmically narcissistic the underlying intentions and motives of these people are. Um, so mm. I thought that was really great. And then I will say, I, I, I think the final, you know, the Last Supper scene I found beautiful because I I, I like hmm. things that that deal with with hopelessness in a hopeful way, and I don't know I, I was kind of moved by that this idea and you know if you're listening this far spoilers um, <laughs> that at the end of the world these people are just sitting around a table with the people they love eating store bought apple pie drinking the coffee that uh you know Doctor um, Mindy ground himself. And, you know, there's a line where uh, Leo's character says, you know, we really had it all, didn't we? And I think there's something, you know, melancholic and, and nice about that. So I, I think that was a strong point. Um, Austin, how about you? Put some Put some stuff in the sandwich of praise.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. Leo's performance, I actually turned to my partner at one point and I was like, Look, despite any sort of criticisms, he's just fucking great in he's everything. Great. You know? He's so good. Like in everything. He's just incredible. Yeah, he's just oh, he's natural. He might Never... be a good
1: actor. He might be he might be a guy. <laughs> He might be pretty good. He's
0: fantastic. He really is. And and I almost feel like And and this I I don't know maybe this is too shitty I almost feel like his talents were kind of wasted on a project that kind of falls a little flat for me because he's so earnest like just in his own personal life too with environmental causes right and and his role is is very earnest even even when he's kind of caught up in things you know he's caught up in it because he's like oh shit I'm kind of like this nerdy scientist and people like. I'm like hot and I'm desirable now like I, I can get that right like there's ego there and then and then ultimately I think even he feels like that he got trapped in his sins so to speak right so I, I feel like they the the kind of journey that his character goes on is is really lovely played but I feel like it just I don't know it's like he's not going to get any love for it and I don't know that his talents were fully utilized in in this um, um and correct it me kind if of I'm wrong the big,
1: is, is this the, yeah. is this the first movie he's done since once upon a time in Hollywood I think so. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Okay, right? never mind. But yeah, I just think that's very interesting that he kind of came off the bench for this. Mm,
2: yeah, and and he's got that... He got hooked in, I think, with the environmental stuff for sure, but go ahead, yeah. sorry. No, no, yeah, I
0: you know, the, the kind of climactic scene, I think, for his character is when he has that rant on live television, right? Which is just very reminiscent of, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And, um, you know, uh, g- kind of old satires and things like that, that have, that have existed. And, and I felt like he was channeling a lot of that energy, which was kind of like a nice nod, but maybe also a little bit derivative as well, you know, but, but, but it just, it, I just, I felt like that that scene even though like from a technical perspective like he's fucking fantastic right like he's great and and you see the pain on his face and the desire and the sort of like helplessness and i love the bit when he's like look we don't always have to be so fucking pleasant all the time and i kind of like that you know um i liked that scene a lot i just don't know that in the scope of the whole project it has the gravitas that i wish it would have had you know um, so that's like everything that I say is going to be like a positive, but like even in that positive, it's probably, I'm kind of like, oh, I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love, um, I mean, I, all the performances I would say I I loved, except I didn't know that, I don't know that I, to, to now go into like a critique. I don't know if I, I loved the Jonah Hill character and here's the reason why. Like I thought he was funny and I heard him say that he was like, he wanted to be like the fire festival personified, which is pretty fucking funny. I like, I like him saying that more than I liked seeing it.
2: Does that make sense? I don't mm-hmm. know why. If- I wanted to punch him in the face the whole time. It made it almost killed the movie for me at some points cuz I was like this is overboard obnoxious.
1: Yeah, yeah, it felt a little pushed. It's like he was in a different movie a little bit. Like he was in he was yeah. in like an older Adam McKay comedy or a side character in a Judd Apatow movie when they were trying to do something a little more serious. Although you know, Boy with the Dragon Tattoo is pretty funny. And when they have the launch and he says, I, I timed it perfectly. My Molly's peaking. I found that very funny. <laughs> that was um, funny. That was He apparently
2: improvised a lot of that, too. I was, you know, uh, listening to an interview and he that a lot of the stuff with Jennifer Lawrence, he just kind of like, you know, pulled out um, the whole the whole thing where he says a prayer to stuff, which I didn't enjoy in the first run. But on the second, oddly, I appreciated more. Um, yeah. That was, I think, if I recall, was improv as well. But, um, yeah, no, guy. I he is funny, definitely.
0: Real quick, I want to I want to give a shout out. Uh, we got we got a comment from uh, a, a couple of comments in the chat. Um, yeah, Starfreery says, give this movie Academy Award of the Century, drop wow. the mic. Awesome film, awesome, awesome film. I hope we're not stepping on your toes. I hope you're not like super angry, but keep commenting in the chat below and let us know yeah. why you think it's an awesome, awesome film. Also, um, Amon Ahmad said, hey, can you give my dad a shout out, Dr. Afa Ahmad? He created this thing called the Ahmad Cohen algorithm and i am currently looking at a paper from 1973 by dr ahmad and dr cohen called a numerical wow. integration scheme for the n body gravitational problem now i Sick. am not a, com- i'm not a scientist but there is i'm looking it's a it's a physics paper from the journal of computational physics from 1973
1: so uh dr ahmad as as dr. a fellow my. academic
0: shout out to you um holler in the house thank you for your contribution to the scientific Ooh. community um yeah so let's keep going here other other let's think let's think let's think about the film like just like without going into like the the kind of cultural stuff like let's still think about it technically helen like performances or like scenes that we liked, things that we liked what did they do well what, what else besides leo's performance can we give some praise for
2: Speaking of Dr. – or not Dr. Peter Ischewel, that scene where they're in the hangar, you know, looking at the mm-hmm. at the bots, right, or whatever they were, at the beads. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and he goes into that whole thing about, like, you know, he's sitting there being like, well, I don't know about the science behind this. And he's like, don't you know <laughs> that I can see into your brain and when you're going to die and how you will die? And I'm like, this is pretty true to lo- – like, I – that was an exam you know, a satirical moment that I felt really, really worked. Um, I loved that scene, actually, because I think that, you know, that's just, that is, you know, the nature of the relationship between the scientific community and, you know, these like tech gods, right? Where it's like, whenever somebody's like, well, wait a second, I don't know that that kind of like, maybe we should think about it before we put this, you know, a, like, you know, self-driving car on the road. It's like, do you know all of these things that like mm-hmm. I have done, you know, like wielding this. Uh, you know, I, I guess yeah, I just loved that scene. I thought it was really well done. Well, I think there Helen is like a godlike a science person, a godlike yeah.
0: power, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Wasn't it like for, for Helen as a scientist, for Austin as an academic? There's an interesting thematic throughout where they kept talking about peer review. I've never seen a blockbuster film that talks that uses the term peer review so much. Is it peer review? Mm. Do we do peer review? Do they even get peer review there? Do they have peer review, and there was something kind of fun about that. And I think you know the scene you talk about Helen as well, where the character says, you know businessman, you think you think I'm a businessman and he says, this is the, yeah, this is the next evolution exactly. of humanity. Um, now real quick, I just want to burst
0: a little bit of the peer review bubble for people out there. Oh, a no. lot of peer review is bros in science citing each other. Oh, no. And getting credits because, especially in science, um, where they are doing multiple co authored papers like six, seven, eight, nine, ten co authors a lot of it, not all of it, and I'm not saying that that necessarily invalidates it per se, but a lot of it is just homies citing homies to get publication credits. And you know, so that doesn't necessarily mean that the science is bad in what they're investigating, but it definitely does mean that what they're investigating isn't always the whole story. It's just that they're trying to kind of prop each other up, and that's partly because the academic game is kind of shitty in some other ways that requires you know citations and things like that. So a lot of it is just kind of like, hey let's just help help out friends not always not always mm-hmm. but we don't need to think of peer review as being like this holy thing that is like gonna somehow get us out of any problems
1: well so part of me thought that like the writers of the film because you know it was Adam McKay and David Sirota came up with the story neither of them are scientists and you got a little bit of that like fetishizing science from non-scientists that like scientists are magic peer review is magical they speak <laughs> only truth yeah. So Well, it's kind of funny that there wasn't a lot of, oh, we're only supposed to be saying good things, so never mind. I, uh, it was, it was inter- I'll just say it was interesting the way that science was treated, from the way they talked about peer review to Ariana Grande singing, like, just listen to the motherfucking scientist um, at the end. This This is a movie that likes science and wants to let you know that it likes <laughs> science.
2: It, but 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 i will say that there were some I, I don't know that it was fully just listen to the experts as much as a lot of the you know criticisms of this film have said like for example right like uh dr mindy gets caught up in you know the 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 for-profit you know thing with the with the uh with the you know movement to blow up the thing in mind the comment in mind the metals right and that's a you know looking at like Just inherently trusting the experts without understanding, like, where their, you know, motivations really come from. I do think the film did do a good job, at least, of touching on Mm -hmm. that. I think it was a little bit idealistic in seeing him just completely turn his back and decide that he was going to, you know, just shun the, right, like, the, the corporate, I guess, the folks that are, you know, running the whole thing. But I guess, for me... I in, I liked that. I liked that the, there was that little bit of conflict, a little bit of contradiction there that I think that, like, maybe didn't make it so – it muddled the message, yeah. right, which is a criticism of mine, if this makes sense. Sorry, I'm rambling yeah, yeah. a little bit, but I'm, like, kind of trying to find the words here. It's like there was kind of this contradiction that I think is inherent also in the way that we do science um, and in the, the motivations for those who, you know, claim to be pure when they say that, you know – this is how things are, right? Um, but you know, and my on the flip side, like I said, that does result in a somewhat muddled message, which we can talk about later. Yeah. But you guys know what I'm talking about saying here? I
0: think so. And and maybe I, I don't even know if this was intentional or not, but maybe if we can even push that even further, that whole Ariana Grande concert to me was so cringy and so weird that I kind of even thought, like, maybe what, what we can take from this is that even if we trust the scientists that are like the good scientists that have the pure motive like even if we trust them they're still going to be fucking cringy and weird and it's still not going to be able to be packaged in a way that is consumable because all we can do is get like a pop star to sing about it with really dumb lyrics and like derivative music and like that's the best we can do which to me then was like a really kind of cynical and almost like fatalistic part of the film for me because I was like oh great so like... Even even if these science crusaders did have a platform, that's the best that they can do? Like, that's, the, that's what the world is? So for me, then, it made me think, oh, our world is just fucked. Not because we don't listen to scientists at, like, an individual perspective, but because we don't, e- we're just, we don't even have the mechanisms in place to communicate at all anything.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Precisely. Precisely. And that's something that I liked about this film, which I think is much more... You know, and again, I know we should be talking about technical stuff and performance and that kind of thing. But I think just to add this in here really quickly, I think that if you step away from it and look, don't look at it as, you know, this is a film that is strictly a metaphor for climate change or whatever, right? Like and you look at it as more of about existential risk in general and kind of a thought experiment as to how we deal with that rather than trying to label it as pure satire, or pure anything, then I'd, I appreciate it a lot more through that lens, if that makes sense. Yep. Because yep. That, that gives leeway for its message to be a little bit muddled because things are not as simple as they, you know, they're not they're not as simple as they often are made out to be in film and stories in general, right?
1: I, I, listen, until it's time to get a little bit critical, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. It's time to get a little critical. Really?
2: <laughs> Nothing else. Okay, well,
1: I'll say I'll say this then, and I, I'm glad we had the discussion about the science because that is important. I okay, I like satire as a form. I'll, and I'll get to the movie. The reason I like satire as a form is because I find it to be one of the most philosophical forms of uh, storytelling, filmmaking, writing. You know, satire emerges or gets popping around the same time that philosophy gets popping. And like, you know, Greece, Athens, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, in Aristophanes, the clouds, we're, were satirizing both Athens and Socrates to an extent. And there's a thing I love. I'm going to get nerdy for 30 seconds and I'll, I'll back away then. In Soren Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation on the concept of irony, he talks about how he thinks that Aristophanes' portrayal of Socrates as this ironic comic figure is actually way more accurate. Why? Because a part of what, you know, philosophers and critical thinkers do is is use like irony and the comic to point out the absurdity of the reality and engage in such a way that it provokes people to see the world differently. And in my mind, that's what, what good philosophy should do. It should provoke me so I see the world differently. And it's what good satire should do. And I just think this movie had such a good opportunity to do some of those things. And I think it does none of those things. So all the good things we could say about this movie, and there are good things... It is not a good or an effective satire, and I think that like it's because it doesn't provoke, right? Like, none. Did did either of you watch that movie and think like, wow, you know what? I really got to think about about stuff differently, like the way I think about science or politics or power or whatever. Like, did it, did it change your mind? Did it make nah, you think anything new? The only
2: thing was like, who am I going to hang out with at the end of the world? Right, like who do I want around my last supper? And Steve table? Carrell, like, that was Keira most provocative thing I did.
1: Do- uh, what, finding – Steve Carell already made that movie. I think it's called like Finding a Friend at the End of the World. It came out like 10 years ago. Um, no, but so that's what I wonder. Like the people watching this movie on Netflix are largely people who are already like climate change is real. Scientists are good. Um, those type of, of politicians are bad. And then no one who, who to be frank, is like a you know, rural Trump voter is going to watch this movie – and be like, well, I'm thinking of stuff differently because it portrays that crowd of people as either like money hungry ghouls or just like dumb hicks who like literally don't want to look at the sky. Um, and there's the scene where they're at a rally, right. and one of the people who's portrayed as like Jonah Hill calls them like dumb rednecks, looks up and is like, "Gosh darn it, there there is a comet in that sky. You've been lying to us." And it's just like, what do you? Is this you trying to show like empathy to those characters? So. I don't know. I made the comment that Austin referenced on Twitter where I, I, was, I was thinking, even if you do something as simple as like, make the politicians like good liberals. And you know, this is why in terms of good satire, this is why Veep works. Because in the show Veep, the power hungry ghouls aren't, you know, the conservatives that in the media we often think of as bad. The ghoul in Veep is a like strong, Feminist liberal woman the type of thing that in like society we, we 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 turn into like angelic figures and veep is like Yeah, but what if those people are evil, too? And what does that do like get out a, another very good satire? You know the the parents in get out like we have that Bradley Whitford line, you know I'd, I'd vote for Obama a third time if I could we see how these I, this ideal <laughs> suburban liberal white family They're the bad guys and if you watch get out as a good white liberal You should walk out of that movie thinking like ooh Like, obviously, I'm not like doing brain swapping, but in which ways am I benefiting off racism or fetishizing communities of color or whatever it is? And I just think this movie failed to provoke in any interesting or challenging way. Done. I'm going to say something really
0: like kind of like postmodern cultural relativistic woo woo here another (laughs) shitty thing about the whole just trust science narrative is that it really disregards indigenous thought spiritual thought so much of what it means to be human by reducing it to certain forms of quantified rationality um there's there's a book called Galileo's Error by Philip Goff, who's a philosopher of science. Um, he's a, a big proponent of something called panpsychism, but one of the things that he argues in this book, Galileo's Error, is that he says that, look, when Galileo started to institute this new type of uh, examination where we can quantify reality, he first made a philosophical decision, and that philosophical decision was that consciousness is not something that can be analyzed in these ways. So let's kind of just hold it aside for a second and let's only look at things that are measurable under these very kind of strict parameters. And in so doing, what he did is he set up an entire paradigm But based on first a decision, a choice, a philosophical move Rather than it being something that just kind of like organically came out of Oh, this is how truth is discovered Which is I think what a lot of people think when we hear like Trust the science, trust the science Like somehow it's this like thing that dropped out of the heavens and into our laps And it's this new way of looking at the world But historically people were just dummies because they thought that God sent the rains, right? Rather than trying to understand other elements of ecological Logical integration Like one of the things That I think is really Potent here in Australia Is this real effort To turn our attentions To indigenous forms Of environmental Sustainability That are now being Integrated by the Scientific community Because they're like Oh shit I guess these people Had something They had some knowledge That if you do Control burns Then that prevents These massive bushfires From getting out of control Or they look at These like settlements That have been built For thousands and thousands Of years That uh, were integrated To the environment and that were a give and a take that didn't just exploit and plunder that was like, oh, actually, maybe that's actually more quote-unquote scientifically in the terms of it just being knowledge. Maybe that's actually a better scientific model, right? So the whole point of like just just trust science, trust science is actually... And I'm going to throw out some super, super, like, maybe hyperbolic terms. It's actually kind of culturally supremacist. And it may be even, like, a part of this Western uh, European patriarchal system that we've inherited. And I just don't like it. I just, I just going think for that... for it. I'm going for it. I just think going that it's it. icky. I just think it's icky. And it just yeah. reeks of, like, dogmatism. And as somebody who has fought the last 15 years of his life to resist dogmatism in all of its forms. When I see it, I'm real sensitive to it. And I don't
1: know. I just feel there yeah. about it. I would say the closest the film gets to acknowledging the tiniest, tiniest bit of what you're saying um, is early on when they, when, when Mindy and D.B. And, uh, uh, Aski are sort of marginalized for being from Michigan State. And, and, and immediately <laughs> right, right, they need to bring right, in some right. like, Ivy League guys. Uh, so you get that sense, at least, that like science isn't some isn't per- isn't perceived as some system of objective knowledge because it's numbers, right? They're doing database things, but it's like no, but we need the Ivy League guys to get the numbers because there's still a sort of you know class-based system of how we how we perceive knowledge. So that's yeah. I don't disagree. Yeah. Okay. With that. Um,
0: I, I do want to say so Raymond Raymond uh, you know of the show um, who wasn't able to make it today sent me a message and he just asked me that if I get a chance if I could also share his two cents on the film so this kind of fits into what we're talking about so it's kind of perfect he said um, he said I thought it was bad and <laughs> and he said that makes and, you think yeah and I would recommend First Reformed and Silent Night if folks are interested in more grounded, human,
1: and funny takes on the climate crisis. I, I, nothing to say other than agreed. Although there was a good satire that Leonardo DiCaprio was actually in after this. Um, It was more of a performance art piece where um, in the context of promoting this film, he decided to spend New Year's on a power yacht that emits more than like a family of four. Every mile it goes, where he hung out with Jeff Bezos, a character who the Peter Isherwell character was literally based on. Um, and I found that to be a fun satirical moment um, that he was performing to show the contradictions of, I guess, performative activism and and lifestyle stuff and class allegiance. So, shouts to Leonardo DiCaprio, the uh, Andy Kaufman. He was
0: making day. deals. He was making deals yeah. with uh, with with Isherwood or <laughs> whatever his name was. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even put this movie in the same, like, category as something like First Reformed, because it's just so different, you know, so different, and the writing is so, in my opinion, so exceptional in that movie, but um, I haven't seen Silent Night, but I've read about it. Have you guys seen? Okay, yeah. Is is that a
1: Raymond horror movie, where it's a a spooky allegory, I think? Yeah, it's like, there's, like,
0: this this family, this British family that are having, like, a dinner party, and, like, they invite people over, but it's, like... But the, the tagline is, like, no matter the fun and games and things that are happening inside, like, that can't, like, change the horrors that are taking place outside or something yeah. like that. that
1: well, kind of and, and along the lines of comet based movies, I would say a, a film to add to Raymond's list that I think explores at least the existential implications of human annihilation would be, um oh, Melancholia. Melancholia. Uh, which is a really great film that gets it. I mean, it's a whole movie about, like, the last five minutes Of what Don't Look Up is about, basically. Um, Yeah. I I have a question for either of y'all. Do you think, and then maybe this is me trying to be fair to the filmmakers. Are we, well, no, and I'll say this before I say we should be fair to the filmmakers. They made an official website that's all about climate change. The filmmakers themselves have a website they made with Netflix that's like use better light bulbs. Okay. But are we putting too much onto the film by reading it through this lens of climate change because um and there was a good article i forget the the the, the author uh, the baffler wrote a kind of critical review of don't look up in which the author basically just said like a comet's a bad allegory for climate change a comet is one thing that happens all at once whereas climate change mm-hmm. is something that's a multifaceted phenomenon that involves every different aspect of human life has been happening for hundreds of years and any solution to it isn't just like shoot a missile at the rock it's a complicated thing that involves how we consume, how we spend, our politics, our science, all this sort of stuff. So, I guess is the, should we be reading this film as just like a general commentary on how as people we react to crises? Uh, Helen, what do you think?
2: That's yeah. That's what I was attempting to articulate earlier. Is that I think that. Um, And I've heard this plenty of times, right? I have, you know, one of my very good friends, Emma, shout out to her. She's a longtime Wisecrack fan and listener of this podcast pointed out that, like, you know, this really falls apart if you just look at the comet as a stand in for climate change. Right. Because happens all at once. uh, You know, it's it's something that there is a very clear solution to and, you know, blow it up. Right. Um, Whereas climate change is multifaceted. I think that. I I see that, right, and I've heard that other places before as well, but I think that it's, it's boxing the film in and I think we're giving, you know, as I said before I think you, I, I personally look at it um, through the lens of existential risk in general and how we respond to existential risk, right? And then I appreciate it much more, right? Because just if you just look at it strictly through the lens of climate change, I mean, foundationally speaking, the comet is a Not a great metaphor, (laughs) right? It's hyperbolic intentionally, perhaps. But it's not just strictly a good metaphor, right? I'm just going to quickly say, like, Um, I know they conceived
1: of this film before COVID happened. And I think we would perceive this movie way differently if we didn't have two years of politicians around the world screaming, believe science, believe science, trust the scientists. So it sort of front loads how, how at least I perceived all of that stuff. There's a lot of attached to that now. So if only COVID wouldn't have happened, this movie could have been better.
2: Right. And I want to add to that because I, I was listening to this podcast, um, you know, they you know, they made like a whole six part series. Right. Like about the podcast or not. I'm sorry, about the film. Right. About the making of it. Um, and if I recall correctly, they got done, you know, like McKay got done writing this like a month before COVID hit. Right. And then they did some rewriting as things kind of kept, you know, mm-hmm. getting exponentially crazier. And so that's why I think we see this show up. I wonder what that very first draft looked like, right? And perhaps then we would have, you know, it may not have fallen as flat. Right? Because we would have had a different relationship with the film.
0: That's why I I don't even know that this film is about climate change so much as it is just about, like, hey, what are we going to, as a community, as a human community, what's going to be the form of rationality that governs us? Is it going to be religious mystification? No. Is it going to be certain, like, political ideology? No. It's going to be the rationality of science. And that's what this film is all about, which I find very strange coming from an artist right? Like, I find that, that when art and science, maybe they're not, like, non-overlapping magisteria or something like that, but I almost feel like fucking, like, scientistic art is like, I don't know, like there's something about art that is supposed to be transcendent that is beautiful, that is poetic, that is that breaks the bounds of that which is easily quantifiable, like for me, when it's good art anyway, and part of my whole problem with like the digitization of art and the digitization of distribution is that it's becoming scientified, for lack of a better term, you know, it's the quantification of um, human imagination, the quantification of desire the quantification of romance and love and, and hope and despair and and fear and all of those things that I just it, to me that takes all mystery out and then it's not art anymore. Then it is just something else, something that's quantified, enclosed, explained. Um and 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 so I, there's this weird relationship. So I think that's really what the film is about. And just to, to give a shout out to our amazing producer Matt, he wrote up this little doc for us with some uh, great things. There was a um, a review of the film, a critique of the film from Psychology Today that said this film fails at a com as a comedy because it's not really satire. This stuff actually happened and we. We all experienced it with COVID, so it's it's just not that funny. Maybe it would have hit harder in 2005, but in 2022, it falls flat. And I think I think so much of, of kind of like the film's impetus to be like, hey, the form of rationality that should govern politics, society, family, et cetera, et cetera, is the scientific form of rationality. I find it very kind of strange, um, but I think that really that's, that's the message of the film. And because like Michael just said, we've been hearing it for two years and we have our own sexiest doctor in the world or sexiest scientist, In the world, Dr. Fauci, like I almost, I I almost was like, did this film get written after 2020 and 2021 when Fauci was viewed as like the sexiest? Like he was literally, wasn't he literally declared
1: like the sexiest scientist in the world by People magazine or something? I was yeah. also over in Don't Look Up, like, the ninth time someone said about Leonardo DiCaprio, he's actually attractive. It's like, we get it. You took a really <laughs> handsome actor, and you scruffed him up, and he, like, has a Midwestern accent, which makes him inherently ugly or something. Also, <laughs> shouts to shouts to Melanie Lynskey, who plays his wife, who's one of the best actors in the game, um, and she's great in it. Um, but yeah, and there's also, to, to continue to heap praise on producer Matt, in the rundown doc as well, he put a letter to the editor, someone wrote from the LA Times, um that that compared it to a modest proposal the jonathan swift essay about it, we should sell irish babies um and i think the big difference right between don't look up and a modest proposal is a modest proposal like scandalized people people read a modest proposal in the 18th mm. century and we're like oh my god he thinks we should actually sell human lives to which his point is like that's basically already what you're doing and you're scandalizing <laughs> you're doing yeah. right and i yeah. think that right. like and that's why it's good satire um This movie's, yeah, this movie's just, it's not scandalous. It's not provocative. Um, Maybe it is the sum, though. And if it is, like, truly, 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 if people are watching this film and it is provoking them to think differently about any type of large-scale crisis or or collapse, ecological or otherwise, then that is an objectively good thing. However, art and propaganda are different things. And I think, Mm. you know, it might be a good piece of propaganda, and I think this is why the reaction to it is so weird, where scientists are like, this movie's great. Media people that write about the climate are like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Film critics, whose job <laughs> it is to watch and write <laughs> about movies with a critical lens, are just like, you know what? The movie doesn't work. And the, the people are like, oh, so you don't believe in climate change? It's like, no. It, it's it's a good piece of propaganda, and it's maybe not a good piece of art. And that's okay, everyone. That's okay, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's the, yeah, people don't like this movie because it's hilarious or because it is good satire, right? They like it because it makes them feel seen. Like that is the yeah. like by and large the response I think has been to this movie where not even just climate scientists, right? Like <laughs> like you know, you go to like the nursing subreddit, and everybody's quoting this movie all the time. Like, oh my god, I've never so felt so seen as when like Leonardo DiCaprio starts screaming that we're all gonna die, right? Because they feel like they're screaming this every day of their lives. That is what ultimately is that I think is is why people latch onto this movie. But it's you're you are correct. It is not because it's great art. Also, <laughs>
1: so the main thing I learned today is that Helen goes on the nursing subreddit for funsies. i do i
2: spend so much time on medit i spend (gasps) wait that's where i spend all my social media time is doom scrolling seeing what doctors are saying about covid so um but but yeah but they but but truly like healthcare workers really do feel like this movie speaks to them because they have from you know all this time have just been feeling they're screaming into the void about how bad things are right and climate scientists say the same thing and that's
1: good though right It's good that it makes those people feel affirmed and seen. It's good that it makes, like, tenured Midwestern science professors be like, hey, I'm in a movie. Um, But none of those (laughs) things. It's like you could be, like, a bobsledder. And when Cool Runnings came out, you were like, wow, our community hasn't been represented. It's so good they made a movie about bobsledders. But doesn't make it, like, Citizen Kane because you, too, like to bobsled. Although I guess that's more particular because it's about Jamaican bobsledders. But, yeah.
2: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the
0: Yeah, that was one of the other things that I did think about too is is I've just been around too many academics for too long maybe <laughs> yeah. and I just know that they are like clamoring they just are loving that they're 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 like that's right I am Leonardo DiCaprio. I could be they're like I could be the sexiest scientist in the world if only they would listen to me. Like my 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 essay that I wrote, my discovery—that's the thing that's going to change the world. And if only I had that platform, then I too would be on the cover of People, and I'd be having an affair with a really hot talk show host. And and I'm like, oh, I yeah, just see them Rachel like larping. you and Rachel Maddow
1: would be in cahoots.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Okay, so as in a, in, in any compliment sandwich, uh, you do a compliment, and then you do a little bit of a critique, and then you you send them out the door with a hey thank you um so what's the bottom what's the bun uh if we did the meat of the critique and the top bun of compliment what's like a final compliment that we would say about this film um helen you got anything else here cuz i feel like helen you might you might have a little bit more love for the film i feel like michael and i have been a little bit more angry about I this do. film i do
2: i appreciate it because i think it it i again you know i my biggest struggle with this movie was that I don't think the message was clear. I don't, I I personally don't think it was just trust the experts. Because again, you have that, that uh, moment of, you know, not just moment, but you have, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio siding with, right, like with the corporations. You know, we've uh, talked about this earlier. I think like, I don't think it, I think it has nuance that has been underappreciated, right? Like that is, that's my thing with the film. Do I think it's, you know, just like, provocative if you don't consider that nuance no I don't think it is right but I think that if it's you know if you go through the screenplay and you look at the the fact that like the evolution of especially of Dr. Mindy I think that there is there is more to it than it's getting credit for right um I mean you know but but that's that I think again right like if it's not provocative to the people that it should be provocative to does it matter right it's got a muddled message um where was I going with that? I don't even know. You know, I, I guess the, the other thing I liked about it was, um, I think it just is a superficial thing, but, like, you know, the shot, like, this the comet and the, the beauty in the comet and how it's come barreling towards them and they're looking up. I think, like, on the second watch, I was more emotional than the first watch. I actually laughed in the second watch and I cried. The first one, I was just like, holy shit. But, um... On the second watch, you know, it was just those scenes where they're looking up at the comet and it's coming towards them and the end is nigh. I I loved it.
1: Those played a lot better in a theater because the comet looked a lot bigger. Whereas rewatching it on TV, I was like, oh, it's pretty small. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's the point. Is that it doesn't yeah. have to
0: be, like, a melancholia-sized planet, but that even just... Because it's what, like, like seven kilometers Nine wide? kilometers,
1: I think, is eventually nine where kilometers. we end up. It starts as between five and ten. The final number they give us in the film is nine. So it's nine um, kilometers,
0: which isn't that... I mean, that's big, but, like, yeah. you wouldn't think that that would destroy our life on this planet, you know? But... Yeah.
1: Michael, do you have a compliment yeah. bun? I have a positive thing. There's a line in the film that I really like. Um, this is the part of the film where Leonardo DiCaprio um, decides to stick with the government. J-Law's, her, her her head's in a bag. She's going off the grid. Dr. Oglethorpe, played by Rob Morgan, is walking away. And, um, you know, Leo's kind of like, what am I supposed to do? And And Oglethorpe, played by Rob Morgan, says, a man's always got choices, Randall. Sometimes you just got to choose the good one, and I thought that was great—a really good line and a really great moment exploring this this false either-or between I either work with the bad guys or I do nothing—and and I think that was a really great moment. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish um, my thoughts
0: before we kind of just do a couple also like maybe a fun thing afterwards too. By the way, uh, courtesy of Bides in the chat, um, we'll we'll do a little fun thing after we finish this here. But um, I want to say one thing, a really critical thing, and then I'll take my positive takeaway from this. So um, there's a great there's a great uh, online film um, criticism and film review site called Electric Ghost. If you're not familiar with this, everybody, but the founding uh, the founder and editor of it is a, a guy named David, and he did not like the film. He said. I've maintained that Adam McKay is an artless, supercilious hack since the big short and have been vindic- and have been vindicated, but his films are at least useful for providing direct access to the inveterate imagination of the milquetoast toast liberal in all of its arrogance and bad faith. So this is that that was that was like really flames being thrown. And I actually I don't I don't think that especially the last part about how his films are at least useful for providing direct access to the inveterate imagination of the milquetoast liberal this is my positive thing on this I think that's actually kind of a good thing though and the reason I think it's a good thing is at least we're getting so like like at least we can speak out and be like hey. There's this problem of the us-v-them politics when you stand in, like, this position of the pure, when actually, if we really take a critical lens, the sort of center-left political regime that dominates much of the Western world is problematic in so many ways because of its political-economic alliances, because of the strategies that it's using for green investment to just make more billionaires by transitioning to, quote-unquote, sustainable technologies or whatever. Those solutions, I think, are also problematic. And I think what this film does is, even though, obviously, it critiques the kind of, like, the bash model of um, kind of trying to use an economic approach that um, it didn't really give us kind of another lens into okay so what's like the progressive approach that might not necessarily be great for developing communities or that might not be great for indigenous and first nations peoples around the world Um, I think at least it kind of presents us with okay these are the people who do have a lot of control over the media messaging and things like that and I think it's good for us to be like okay let's introduce ourselves we know exactly now who Adam McKay is and who a lot of the people are that he kind of would align with. And I think that's at least valuable for the purposes of like social communication. So that's one thing that I think is actually really interesting that that I might kind of want to take away. Okay. Done with the serious stuff. DudaBides in the chat said, What you doing when the asteroid hits? Wrong answers only. I'm grabbing a wakeboard and hitting the coast. Michael,
1: what you doing when the asteroid hits? Oh, you know what I would want to do? I want to like drive my car off a bridge. And just, like, listen to fucking, like, Bon Jovi and go to, like, the biggest overpass in L.A. and just, like, fuck it. And just, like, drive off the bridge and fly through the air and go out on my own accord, not by some cosmic bullshit rock.
0: (laughs) Helen, what you doing when the asteroid hits? Wrong answers only.
2: Okay, I'm lighting up a fat joint. Wrong answers? That's wrong? Ah, it's that's a tough fine. one. Let, no, 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 no. It's not. That's 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 the right part of my answer. No. Um, Let's see. What am I going to do? So I'm going to light up a fat joint. I'm going to smash into some bakeries. And I'm just going to fucking Ooh. eat everything inside, dude. Everything. Everything that I find. Every fucking croissant. Every, like, just <laughs> cake that's just, like, yeah. loaded with sh- just all the fondant, dude. Just and naked. Completely naked. Like, that's the other. Yeah. It's going to be great.
0: Yeah. I think... M- I kind of like Duda Bide's answer. I'm going to say wrong answer only. I'm going to steal a boat in the harbor and I'm going to charge that wave and go out perfect storm style where I'm like, I think that there's hope, you know, where I'm trying to go up over it, but I'm just not going to make it. So, and of course, I'll have already raided all the bakeries, like Helen said, and I'll have all the booze and all the weeds. I'll be absolutely just out of my mind when it happens as well. So perfect. All right. All right, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, We're going to take a little break this week from the mailbag, but we'll jump back into it next week. We've got some emails and some voicemails for the Matrix and things. I mean... Please keep them coming. Give us your thoughts on The Matrix. And now give us your thoughts on Don't Look Up. And uh, we'll go ahead and we'll tackle them next week. But for now, um, I just want to also remind you that you can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Or you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, go check out our Patreon and become a subscriber if you are able and you want access to that bonus stuff. Check out Culture Binge, check out all of our other podcasts, etc., etc. Where can people find you on the internet, Helen?
2: I am on Twitter at HelenFlourish.
1: All right. And Michael? I'm on Twitter at Michael O'Burns. I'm also on Wisecracking, like Austin said. Check out Culture Binge. We're starting a whole new era where a bunch of fun new people are going to be coming on. And I will say, because Austin, I'm going to do a plug um, with two philosophy ish people from the UK Kyle Lewis, Will Strong. They work at the Autonomy Institute. They wrote a book for Verso called Overtime about why we work too much. And I sat down with those two. And that's the most recent episode of Culture Binge, is me talking to them about their book, about work, about the philosophy behind why they think we work too much. So check it out.
0: Will is lovely. Will is actually in our film, Inventing the Future. Uh, he there's would like a be. whole. There's like a there's like a 15 minute sequence where we are in Autonomy's headquarters yep. in the UK, and Will is in there, and they're just like brainstorming about cool shit that we can do to create a post work world. So
1: he's a man. Yeah. a total man. <laughs>
0: awesome. And yeah, if you want, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or Insta, AUS underscore HAY. That's it. Let's get out of here. Send us out of here, Michael.
1: Goodbye from a comet that's heading towards Earth, which is a really weak allegory for the multifaceted operations of climate change.